Good afternoon and welcome to the Healthy Indoors Live Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. I'm the founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, for those of you watching this show, show, you may see we're a little bit different format. Uh, we're going to be uh, using one of our other platforms that we live stream with, uh, as opposed to our standard Zoom for our Thursday uh, participation. So uh, you were probably watching the show on the Healthy Indoors online global community, but you still might be watching it on Healthy Indoors Live or any number of other portals such as LinkedIn and Facebook. So anyway, welcome to everybody. Um, the show is live streaming right now on Healthy Indoors, uh, excuse me, uh, global.healthyindoors.com and you can look look for it under the Healthy Indoors uh, live show. Um, we uh, will welcome your comments. We have a chat box live on that on that stream, so you're able to uh, type in comments. And uh, you also have the opportunity to potentially come in on the show and ask a question live of our guest or, or myself uh, just by direct messaging our moderator, Susan Valenti, who is the editor of Healthy Indoors magazine and currently sitting behind the scenes in a different platform. So a little, di little different than normal. Um, so uh, we're going to bring on our, our, our guest today is uh, a returning guest. Uh, she, she was here uh, a couple months ago. It's Dr. Lauren Tessier. Um, but uh, first, we have a word from our sponsor. Indoor air quality is now on the minds of everybody. How can we improve the air quality in general? So Erlab is a company that provides protection through filtration for your breathing zone in the laboratory and outside the laboratory. And why we're here in the commercial space today is to provide protection for the air that we breathe. It's very important in commercial spaces, obviously because there's a lot of people that come in and out of restaurants, schools, long-term care facilities, whatever it may be, offices. So we want to provide the healthiest air possible so we can get back to some sort of normal state. So um, without further ado, I would like to welcome uh, Dr. Tessier. So Lauren, great, great to see you here again. Um, she's a naturopathic physician. Uh, she's licensed in the state of Vermont. Um, she, uh, you're the East Coast only certified CIRS certified uh, naturopathic practice. And you're also the current president of the Interna International Society for Environmental Acquired Illness. That is correct, yes. All those things. And again, I asked you the last time, and I can't believe that I'm having a brain lapse here, CIRS, what does that stand for? Sure, so it's Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. Um, and it's more or less uh, the concept of the body going into a inflammatory state long after the incendiary or the cause is um, kind of gone and out of the body. So there's a handful of people after they've been uh, water damage building exposed, not just mold exposed, uh, that go on to develop SERS. So uh, rather than just detoxing the body, you have the uh, first thing you need to address, which is the detox, and then you really need to go in and you need to put the fire of inflammation out in the body. Makes sense. And that's, and that's not something that the, um, the standard physician, like a family practice physician, or you know, even maybe a specialist that someone might see would do, right? This is, yeah. It's a different approach, is it not? Yeah, it's a, it's a definitely a different approach, and it's still something that um, I think uh, people have a lot of reservations about. I'll put it that way. Um, but ultimately, you know, when you step back and you look at the twenty thousand foot view of disease, whether it's atherosclerosis or um, gosh, name another one, even like breast cancers and things like that, inflammation always precedes these things. You you very rarely see like a cold 
meaning non-inflammatory health issue develop in people's bodies. So um, there are times where inflammation is beneficial, it helps us recover, it helps us get over colds and flus, and there are other times where it just kind of kicks on and doesn't stop. So we have all these chronic conditions that are very prevalent in our population, um, but no one's really ever found the thing that kind of flicks that switch on. And so, um, you know, inflammation is, I think everyone knows about inflammation, you know, it's, it's not, it's not something that's obscure or anything like that, but the mechanism where it really stays locked in and keeps going kind of like snowball effect. Um, not a lot of people recognize that and it can be really hard to not only address, but even before that get someone to, to consider it or even take it serious enough to, to try to do that work. So I guess I have to, the first question, and we asked this last time back when you were here in June, but I, I think it would be worth revisiting it. Um, what, how, how did you end up here and in, in, in getting in, in, in this specialized uh, area, you know, that's sure. not really common practice? Yeah. Um, so I did a primary care practice uh, for um, a few years, but really within my first year, I saw people who were um, developing fatigue and all of these things that were totally just non-responsive to treatment, so all the typical allopathic and naturopathic approaches. And uh, after a while, doing some digging into environmental medicine, because that was always kind of something I thought was pretty cool, uh, even while I was going through school. So um, come to find out these people suffered a flood, you know, two years prior, and they had their home offices in their basement in the same spot where things were flooded, and they were dried out and remediated. and. Um, you know, mold kind of popped up here and there. You know, it's the breadcrumbs, the universal breadcrumbs that the universe throws you where you're like, oh, oh, oh. So that's really what kind of got me started on the path to mold. I have quite a few other reasons for why I've stuck on it, both with family health reasons and my own personal health reasons and wanting to help people. But ultimately, that's really where it started. And after um, I just became so enamored by mold and by healing and recovering people from mold, um, I closed out my primary care practice and just went all mold specialty practice. And really um, one of the, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but one of the main reasons why I did that was as a primary care provider, I had insurance companies telling me that I couldn't do these things. I even still have documentation of a local insurance company telling me that I could not tell my clients who are allergic to a specific allergy to avoid them or else my visits wouldn't be covered. Like, Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But people don't realize how tied physicians' hands are when you start working with insurance. And so um, that was really one of the reasons why I stepped back because it was like, I can't serve my clients. I can't serve them appropriately um, to the point that if you even would um, discuss a lab value, like say food intolerance testing, something that they really didn't recognize, if they found out after the fact, they would like take all that money back and they would, you know, give you a slap on the wrist. And it, it just became to a point where you become fearful of the insurance companies that you're working for. And as a result, you're playing this really difficult middleman where you want to provide your clients the best care. Your clients want insurance coverage, but your uh, insurance companies that you answer to, uh, you can get in some some big deep doo doo if you if you don't play their game. So um, that's actually why one of the main reasons why I stepped out. And since then, I've been able to help so many people with mold exposure. It's been really rewarding. But do you still have issues as far as the insurance uh, aspect of it, right? 
Or, no. I mean, you're, you're able to get coverage? I, so what happens with my clients is they pay time of service and then we give them this fancy receipt that tells them kind of what we did, how we did it, and then they go to their insurance company and submit it on their own behalf. Um, and it usually gets treated as like an out-of-pocket, uh, out-of-network cost. So there are quite a few clients that do get reimbursed, um, not for the full amount, because when you're an insurance uh, provider, even if I were contracted with insurance, I don't even get the full amount that I built. Oh. So it gets kind of similarly passed on to the client. So, um, but the beautiful part is I get to I get to treat my clients in a way I know that can help them recover, um, and we don't have to worry about being penalized by insurance companies for doing something that they don't necessarily believe in. And mold that's, is one of those. Yeah, and and that that seems that seems like a huge caveat for for you to be doing. Um, are, and I guess I must ask the set, the follow up to that is how many physicians like yourself are there in the in the country? Are there that many? I guess it's not a, it's not common, right? No, it's not common. And so there are quite a few uh, SIRS um, SIRS certified physicians um, under the role of Richie Shoemaker. I actually stepped back from my SIRS certification. Um, so I am still SIRS literate. I have just chosen to be informed by the process, but also there are other ways to work with mold aside from SIRS, and I really want to drive that point home. Um, and so when it comes to SIRS certification, there are people who are listed on Shoemaker's website, Surviving Mold, but there's also plenty other mold literate physicians that um, are listed on the ICI website. So ICI, as you mentioned earlier, is the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. It's the nonprofit that I'm part of. We teach physicians how to do what I do. Um, and lots of wonderful uh, teachers that sit on the board with me that really help um, kind of uh, rise all the ships with our with our rising tide. And so we're really, really working on um, getting more people literate in this process, or at least even being able to recognize it in their primary care. So they go, oh, you know what? This is that mold thing. I'm gonna send them over to this person. Um, so while there's not tons of us, that nonprofit is really working towards increasing our numbers and increasing awareness so we can better serve people. Well, that makes sense too, because there's not, um, you know, in other aspects of medical practice, right, it's not uncommon to have specialists. I mean, effectively you become a specialist for dealing with mold. Uh, mm -hmm. And the, the hard part though, is when you're looking at other specialties, there are diagnosis codes that exist. There are di diagnosis codes for like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and all these things. Um, there aren't too many diagnosis codes that center around mycotoxin exposure, which are the toxins that are produced by mold. Um, the only real diagnosis codes we have that are in the mold realm are allergy, fungal allergy, and fungal infection. And those really are the two forms of mold illness that are widely more or less accepted by allopathic medicine. Allergy more so, and allopathic meaning like traditional MDs, emergency rooms, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, and so they really understand allergy. Fungal infections, they say, oh no, they're only for immune compromise. They're only for people with HIV and AIDS and cancer and all these things. But we're finding in the literature that more and more healthy immunocompetent people, people who are completely healthy, are developing severe fungal infections because of the high rate of antifungal use in our construction materials, mm -hmm. in our foods, um, and even in the medical realm. So um, 
people are starting to get a little bit more hip to the groove of the concept of having some fungal infections. But the two that I really uh, work with in my practice, which is the toxic exposure reaction, and then that SERS inflammation reaction, uh, those are just not widely recognized in the medical community because we don't really have proper diagnosis codes for them. The only ones that we have for that toxic component is specifically food-based. And so, you know, that's really where it stops. So what do we do with people who we're finding aflatoxin in their bodies? They're not really eating a high processed diet in their houses covered in mold. Like what the heck do I, I code them with? You know, so it's it's a dance. And that's one of the mm -hmm. reasons why insurance want to accept that, because there's no true diagnosis code definition that exists out there. So we do the best that we can, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, when you are here last time, you, you did identify those four different areas, right? Because there really are four different, uh, I, I'm going to say pathways, but pathway is not really the right word, but four different ways that you can be adversely affected by mold, right? Yes. And yep. so, and, and again, re reiterate those because it, that that was some of it was a little bit news to me. I was very familiar with you know talking about three of them, but the the fourth one surprised me. Yeah, and so we would call those the, the pathophysiology, right? The the physiology of the disease state. So one is very much that allergy, so the the histamine, the specific antibodies, the IgE that are correlated with allergy, positive skin prick tests, anaphylaxis, swelling swelling lips, difficulty breathing, itchy eyes, sneezing, coughing, asthma, wheezing, that whole kind of allergic histamine component is one. And then there's the fungal infection, like we just mentioned, where it's the actual um, microbe that has gained entrance into the body and is growing and proliferating and challenging the immune system. One of the curious things about the infection component is we also have to consider colonization in that. If you go into the medical literature, you will see that we carry different types of aspergillus in our biofilm. So you know how we have our beneficial flora in our gut? Well, we also have our, our fungi in our gut yeah. and on our skin. And so um, when we start talking about fungal infections, we also have to consider the role of colonization in that. Um, and then, of course, those last two, like I mentioned, are that toxic component, that mycotoxicosis, um, and then that SERS component, um, which is the chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Now, something that might kind of throw people for a little bit of loop when they first find out about SERS uh, is that it's not just mold. It's anything that triggers that inflammation. So that could be like cigatera toxin. It could be red algae bloom toxin. It could be um, a, a chronic low-level smoldering infection, like a chronic Lyme picture that keeps that chronic infection going. So SERS is kind of this odd duck where we know it in the mold realm, but I mean, really anything that releases some type of local biological toxin from a living organism into the system can trigger that inflammatory response. So it kind of toes the line and all a lot of different uh, causes, a lot of different etiologies of how it could be triggered, mold being just one of them. So and with these four different aspects, um, somebody, a, a patient potentially could be affected in more than one one route, right? I mean, or, or it could be multiple, it could be a single. So, so this makes it even more complex, right? Because you have like four moving targets, uh, different potential courses of action, right? Right, right, absolutely. But one of the great things, um, 
it's taken me some time to understand the algorithm and the approach that I use with clients. And so I always go after the low hanging fruit first, right? It's just logical. It's what we should do. It's financially prudent. It's time, timely prudent. Um, I do the mycotoxin work first because that toxin is coming from somewhere. Is it coming from inside the body from a colonization? Is it coming from the food we eat? Or is it coming from the environment that we inhale? If we address all those three, we're gonna hit addressing the allergy because allergy is coming from local irritation from little crunchy mold fragments in, in the environment. So if we're addressing the environment to try to hunt down mycotoxins, we're gonna be clearing off that allergy exposure. And if we've cleared out the environment and we've cleared out the allergy exposure, but we still have a mycotoxin issue, then we have to figure out if the, if the call is coming from inside the house, right? We need to figure out if um, some of the toxic component is actually coming from a colonization or an infection. So um, when you really look at things from the toxic component first for the lay of the land of those kind of four overlapping things, and you go after that and you try to find the cause, you get to clear three of the four things off the table. So, um, and we lost Lauren for a sec here. Hopefully we'll uh, reconnect. So while we're waiting to uh, get Dr. Tessier back uh, back on the broadcast, um, I'm going to just take a quick jump and do a uh, plug for an event that we're involved with coming up in November. It's the um, Healthy Buildings America 2021 conference. And uh, this is a uh, an event that's taking place November 9th through 11th in uh, Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, it's a really cool event in that it's... Uh, it's a different focus for them. This is the 16th incarnation of this event, which is uh, from the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate, ISIAC, and it's being hosted, this this uh, this edition of it is being hosted by Siri, who uh, is the Cleaning Industry Restoration, excuse me, Cleaning Industry Research uh, uh, Institute. Um, so they're hosting it in Hawaii. Um, Healthy Indoors uh, is, uh, we're a Platinum Media sponsor. We are the Platinum Media sponsor for it. And uh, we are going to be the provider for the live stream for those of you who can't attend that conference in person and would like to uh, watch it uh, watch it online. So um, anyway, that's, that, that's an event coming up. Um, we highly recommend that you uh, take a look at it. Uh, it's, uh, you know, clearly uh an event that's uh we're excited about and we we think you should be excited too um we got lauren back that's great <laughs> things happen you see I, I, immediately went, yeah. I went to a commercial immediately and that's what that's what you do that's right 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 so where where did you guys lose me that's so unfortunate uh, yeah we lost you right in the beginning of your last commentary you froze up and you disappeared oh so, so you guys didn't even hear the overlap of everything Let's no. try again. So yeah, why don't, I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. I don't, I'm not even quite sure what happened. It could, happens, it could so. be Vermont internet. I'm not. I'm not going to pick on you. Yeah. Well, I mean, go ahead. Why not? <laughs> go for it. Okay. So anyway, as you were. Um. So can you can you prime prime me again so I can make sure that I'm hitting so, the high notes? For so you? you were talking about uh, at that point you were talking about um, mycotoxins, um, being you know the first the first area that you address because right. there, there's so many ways that it potentially overlap. Right. And so if you address the mycotoxins first, you have to think about where is this coming from? Is it coming from the built environment? Well, that's also where allergies would likely come from too. Or is it coming from um, 
the, the internal environment from a colonization or an infection. And so if you go ahead and you kind of use some algorithmic approach where you're you're doing this first and then you're trying that after, you can really clear three of those four things off the table if you do it in a, um, a, a metered approach. And that's something that I've been doing for quite a few years now. And I used to jump all in on SIRS and run all the panels and all these things. And I just found out that I was spending um, clients money on labs that was just telling me that they were sick, you know, and I found that if I detox them long enough, like 60 to 70% of those cases would not actually come up as positive for SIRS versus if I went after SIRS first, everyone who I came into contact with, it just felt like they had a death sentence. So um, really using and approaching detox and supporting the body and its natural ability to detox um, has really been uh, just a game changer. Well, this seems like somewhat of a novel approach though, right? And again, not something that I've heard, you know, described or discussed, you know, in the industry very often. Yeah, yeah. and that's what we're trying to get the word out on. You know, I think the the thing that makes me the saddest about um, mold in the healthcare realm is that it's very um, it's very uh, fractionated. There's there's warring fractions in the mold realm. There are warring fractions in the mold realm, um, and that's really unfortunate for the clients that we see. So if you're someone who's all sirs and no mycotoxicosis, you are doing a huge disservice to many clients. And I can say that firsthand experience. If you're going all mycotoxicosis and there's no such thing as SIRS, you are doing people a severe disservice. If you're going all allergy and there's no such thing as those two, you're doing people a huge disservice. So um, one of the goals with having, being a part of ICI and trying to have it grow is to really bring this community back together because you know, uh, we have a lot of wonderful physicians who started um, these frameworks, you know, Dr. Campbell, Thrasher, Brewer, Shoemaker, but they all had a slightly different perspective. And at times, sometimes interactions were, were tenuous. And, you know, we have generations of practitioners that were then trained under them that then very much stayed in those specific lanes. So and putting, bl- putting blinders on effectively. Putting right? blinders on effectively. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a goal of ICI. I, like, I'm sick of it. Like, I'm so, I just want to bring this dang community together mm-hmm. because we have people we need to serve. And this is, it's an epidemic. It's an absolute epidemic. And you know it. I mean, you're, you're on the front lines with indoor air quality. You know how bad it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it clearly is, it, which which raises a question that uh, that uh, Susan Valenti, our, our editor from the magazine, posed uh, pre-show, and I, I just wanted to pass this one by you. Uh, there have been quite a few mold professionals on Instagram lately telling people who have been exposed to mold that they will have a very difficult time dealing with COVID symptoms and that there are new studies showing that this is true. Do you agree with these professionals? And where are these new studies? We, we couldn't find them. Yeah, so there, there's potentially a six degrees of separation with that statement. And there's um, some bringing together of trying to approximate two different pieces. Um, and so, first of all, anyone who's making any COVID-related claims really needs to um, 
move cautiously and be very cautious about the implications of what they're saying and sharing, saying and sharing. So I will kind of preface that first. Um, when it comes to the indoor built environment, mold specifically, we know that mold and mycotoxins can shift our T helper cell balance. It can shift our T reg cell balance. These cells are uh, very important lymphocytes that keep our immune system operating correctly. Um, in these instances, we can see things like chronic infections. I can see Lyme disease flare up. I can see Epstein-Barr virus flare up. So when we have this immune suppression, other things that might be creeping or crawling in around our body can kind of get a foot up and take advantage of that situation. Mold does suppress the immune system. Do we have direct data that says this particular disease state that is circulating around right now very much worsens um, or is very much worsened by mold? I don't have that particular data. However, we have a lot of things going on in India with the uh, mucor mycosis, um, that, that the, the black kind of like slimy mold that people are getting infections on top of uh, this particular pandemic in their system. That's really, you can see that all over the news um, in India. So I just caution people to just to be mindful that if you're operating in your best health and you're taking care of yourself, it's one less thorn in the lion's paw. It's one less thing that your body has to deal with. So while there isn't potentially a, a causation there, it's the ability to put your body into the healthiest state possible. So when it does encounter that issue, it can do its best to move through it and then recover. So I, I hope that's kind of clear. I know it's a little bit vague, but um, you know, we, we really have to be cautious about, about what we're saying with these things and be responsible because it can throw people into an absolute panic. And I, I have- What's the problem with social media though, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we have so much unfiltered inf you know, information, yeah. <laughs> you know, that is like, yeah, it's problematic. Uh, yes. I, I want to uh, point out to our, our uh, online audience. Uh, first off, we did have we had a glitch and we are not live streaming to the community right now. We're streaming to all of our social media portals. Uh, we are recording, however, so will be a, the recording of this broadcast will be available on the community for replay. Uh, just shortly after we uh, terminate the broadcast today. So don't panic if you're not seeing it there. You still can be in the community and chatting. Uh, I know that our Facebook and our LinkedIn portals are up. Things happen, live broadcast. Uh, but uh, in a few minutes, we'll actually start uh, allowing uh, some uh, audience members to come in and ask questions. Uh, we've got a few queued up already. So um, just to let you know, we'll, we'll be uh, addressing that shortly. Uh, but you know, that's an interesting point as far as the, um, you, you know, I think everybody should go cautiously and especially, I think especially when you read stuff online and you, you know, and, and social media posts that there's a lot of people that post stuff that's maybe not fully accurate or not accurate at all, you know, and that's really not where you should get your information from. Right. Necessarily. And I, I think a lot of people forget that there's a lot of um, games of telephone, you know, a lot of games of telephone going on. That's why whenever I actually do make a statement on social media that's regarding XYZ, I'm putting the PubMed ID. I'm putting the actual validated information because I have worked hard 
in my life and my time to, to speak right, to speak clearly, to speak correctly, and to speak in service to other people. And so I get really nervous um, when those things get twisted and turned and then out comes the other end that NAC is going to save the world. And it's like, okay, wait, let's, let's go back and talk about the shades of gray because there's no black and white. And that's really, it comes down to, there's no dogmatism <laughs> and there's no black and white in any of things related to health. Which, which, you know, brings me to another question. Um, there's, there seems to be at least some entry into the, uh, into the mold area, you know, specifically in the mold, but indoor air quality in general of, of professionals that are coming in from um, more of a marketing background and entering the industry. And what are your thoughts on people who, you know, marketing experts who now become, you know, uh, so-called professionals, remediators and uh, inspectors. And, and again, not saying that they couldn't be qualified because they have mm -hmm. a marketing background, but you know, there seems to be a lot of that. We're seeing that all over the place. What thoughts on that? Um, I haven't, I haven't seen that. Um, I'm sure that you are referring to a couple of specific instances that may have cr not crossed my path or I might not be privy to um, what that looks like. Um, but, you know, we are in this really odd world where marketing and click funnels and <laughs> all these things become such a, a core component. And, you know, I do I kind of close people off like everyone it reinvents themselves everyone can go and become a you know into a, a new profession and to, to you know merge two passions together but i just really want to make sure that if i'm suggesting someone to go work with my clients that they have the training that um, they have the experience and they have an interpersonal relationship with myself so that way we can dialogue and work as a team for my clients so um I hear your concern, and without calling anyone out, I, I, and, I, I and it wasn't the intent that. to try to call anybody yeah. out. I mean, and it's not to not to even uh, imply that somebody can't come from you know the people in the industry come from from diverse backgrounds. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I come from electrical engineering technology, nothing to do with biology, nothing to do with any of this, you know. So, and many, you know, and that's the case of I would say maybe most professionals don't. There's there's not a real specialized background for the for these IEPs. So mm -hmm. I, I have to ask, like, so. Uh, ISEAI, the organization, what, who, what, what would be your group's ideal uh, indoor environmental professional? I mean, like, I mean, yeah. is there like, is there a target professional, like, like a, a profile of a person, you know, like what, what, who, what would they be? Yeah. So I, I had this conversation actually happened to me in Clubhouse a couple of months ago. Um, someone uh, made the great point, and which I totally agree with, that you know, if you have it open to anyone, any Joe Schmo can hop on there and say, I'm an IEP, that's mold literate. Um, what we are doing for our IEPs is that we are mandating that they have um, 10 years of IEP experience in the field. Um, I'm, I believe, I'm not clear on the training, um, I, I believe that we encourage to have um, uh, higher ed bachelor's uh, degrees or higher. Um, and then the other component that's really important for us is making sure that IEPs have three years work experience with a mold literate position. So it is, it is placing a, um, a barrier of entry for people. And, you know, if there are IEPs out there around the country who really want to start to be in service of these folks, reach out to a local physician and just see if you can connect with them, a local physician listed on ICI. Um, 
and really um, get on their radar because physicians are hungry for this help. Our treatments do not work if people stay in exposure. And so we really need really, really strong, reliable, kind, empathetic boots on the ground to do this work with us. Um, so it's kind of like the pleading call out to, <laughs> out to your, your audience to, you know, reach out to a local physician, find us on um, iseai.org, find a professional and just do some digging, see what doctors are in your area that you can form a referral relationship with. It make, makes sense. So we're going to start taking some questions now. Uh, we've had somebody that's waiting in queue for a while. Uh, I'm going to bring in uh, Scott Armour. I, I know Scott well. He's coming from Cleveland, and uh, uh, and I don't see him now. There he is. Hey, Scott. We have audio. I think so. Okay, cool. So you have I a question. Hear you. you have a question. Well, first, Dr. Tessier, thank you very much for uh, participating with Bob. I, I've known Bob for a while, so I love what he's able to do here and, and kind of. <laughs> you know, document and, and archive this kind of information. I listen. I didn't catch your first live one, but I got to listen to it. So I was very impressed. I love listening to you. Um, uh, been around a long, long time in this industry. Um, and I struggle. I work on the standards committees for assessing and remediating, and I do struggle with this. And I, I will tell you, I've been uh, advocating and lobbying to bring the word money of the standards, not because we know the answers, not because I want people to go spend thousands of sampling, but I want them to admit that this is something we need to look for. We've, we've been able to fortunately add <clears throat> something called the ECM, extracellular uh, material, <laughs> to the, the settled spores and fragments, right? But this all adds up to that whole notion of invisible, right? The condition to settled spores, that's the invisible condition versus the live growing condition. In my experience, which, you know, Bob can, can uh, verify, I've seen a lot of patients, seen a lot of sick people. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, the person who is obviously sick, and I, I don't really care what the diagnosis is, it could be suspect, it could be confirmed, you guys can, you know, each of you have a different way and different language, mm -hmm. but it all points to someone sick. Right. And I go in the home, or I go in the school, or the office or the cafeteria, and lo and behold, there's some clear evidence of water damage and mold growth. Mm -hmm. In most cases, we remove that, and we, in many cases, it's reported at least there's some improvement, not complete, mm -hmm. we see this kind of an immediate response. The flip side of that is, when I go to those places, that person is having an immediate response, that acute response, it's kind of layered, complicated with the chronic, that mm -hmm. which is really a lot of what you're looking at. You're, you know, you're monitoring and measuring the, the chronic effects more than what happens when they walk in that you know moldy bathroom in the morning, <laughs> you know, and they suffer for three or four hours like I do, but I don't have a chronic illness. But I think also this all ties up with what are we sampling, what are we telling the people? So the biggest concern that we see, and I and I will say this representing many of my equal colleagues. We see too many people telling people to go out and sample. Go get this sample, go to that lab, use this lab, do a DIY sample, right? Right, right. We then step in and I've got a client who swears the doctor insisted they take this sample or that sample. Yeah. They swear the lab told them it was toxic or not toxic. Yeah. And I'm gonna be the first one, if you knew my background, to say, can we just not worry about whether it's black mold or not because mm -hmm. green mold makes more people sicker quicker? Can we right. just say, 
wow, you have mold growth, can we deal with it? Right. How do we address that interface? The other thing I heard you say that it doubles with this, wow, we want people in the industry that have interfaced three years with doctors. Mm -hmm. That's impossible. <laughs> the only people who do that are the people who have a history that go quite far back or who have figured out how to market and get into the doctors. Mm -hmm. I've been doing this for a long time. Very few doctors will exchange even an email with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. If you work with Shoemaker, then clearly we have five people and some of their spinoffs who can say that. But if you start to limit it to three years with a mold literate doctor, find a mold literate doctor and then find any, any type of medical practitioner who's willing to talk openly with mm -hmm. someone like me, especially when we have to begin to enter the dialogue of what's going on in the environment. Right. So, so, uh, do you, so is, is there a specific question? Well, there, there was a question there at the end. So, I mean, so how do we, how do we, how, how, does better, some, right? how does somebody actually a practitioner like you or I actually like me, interface right? with a medical professional? Exactly. How do people like me, who's, who's a, uh, a reputable known entity in the world of exposure science and environmental data collection and assessment science, mm -hmm. how do we better interface with the group of doctors? Right. Well, it, it involves us too. We all have to get out of our comfort zone. Physicians have to get out of our comfort zone. IEPs have to get out of their comfort zone. Patients have to get out of their comfort zone. Remediators have to get out of their comfort zone. We are so isolated in the bubbles that we move around in the world. And, and Scott, please understand the reason why we have those limitations for just ICI is so we're protecting people from someone who maybe hasn't, it's, in the process of creating membership for ICI, it was so difficult to try to create standards that would simultaneously protect people and try to ensure some type of quality, safety, something. And we we are the first to admit that um, it's not perfect and things will evolve and things will shift and change. And we're always you know, open to feedback on how we can um, integrate more people, but the reality is there's also a huge split in the, the, the IEP realm, you know, like it's really hard. You, if you get 10 IEPs, you guys are not all going to be on the same page sitting in one room, just the way a physician, both literate physicians are too. Like, this is what I'm getting at is I know that we have these difficulties with reaching across the aisle, but it really starts to shift and change when you show up to Healthy Indoors Live and you directly ask me and say, hey, like, let's let's figure this out. Let's work this together because it, this is we are coming from a history, a history, a lineage of people being isolated and separated. This has not been a cohesive community. And this is what we're working towards. So you're right. Looking back retrospectively, not so great. This is what I want to move forward to. This is what I want to help people carry into. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you. And sometimes in order to know that you're going to have a foot in with a physician, sometimes it you do have to sit down and Google mold doctor near me. Because if someone is on Google and they're putting out their Google AdWords that's like mold literate physician or mold doctor or toxic mold symptoms or these types of things, they're going to be someone who actively believes in it, actively tries to treat it, and actively sees clients who need that help. And that physician, I can almost guarantee you, is going to be really happy to know that there's an IEP calling them saying, hey, can we network? Because I would love to be of service to you. Like, 
physicians need you in order to be successful. That's what it comes down to. So I think it, it's a sea change that needs to happen. I mean, I'm on the same page with you, Scott. Without you know, I was a, uh, <clears throat> I actually was the fourth uh, environmental member of ICI. I was, I used to be listed as a, they, they had a, a a category of founding original founding members and i was before i joined the first week ici opened i literally sent them my money on thursday of, after they opened on monday or something like that mm -hmm. um and i found it very intriguing and useful it was a wonderful education to listen to you know the the behind the scenes conversations we were able to have mm -hmm. and um you know, unfortunately, there were some disagreements on, on technicality. And what I found difficult was the people that were debating the technical were not educated in the technical. So they had an opinion and they had influence and they had power to make decisions, but they were not arguing the correct science. And so sometimes it is the loudspeaker, right? Well, who has the megaphone? I think that that what I'm hearing you say and what I heard before, you know, maybe it's time we we re we reengage each other as as industries, and kind of figure this out because I I think that the list of recommendeds is very limited, right? I I I asked someone once. I said, go find out if your people have exposure science and data methodology science before they come in and sample take 42 samples, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, ask your IEPs, how many samples do you take and what do you do first? And unfortunately, the vast majority are going to walk in and start taking samples and, the, and a, an influential yeah. minority are going to oversample and overcharge with yeah. things that are not easily explained. You but said it really see, well. That, that argument, we've made that argument in previous shows too. It's a, If you're first as an IEP, if your first line of action is to come in the door slinging samples, you're already, I think you're already discrediting yourself because if, if, right, if you're not doing, you know, an interview with the occupant and trying to, trying to get some background information and, and then coming in and physically looking around and seeing what's there in that environment, how, saying we're going to sample, why, why would you start with that? Bob, it's like the industrial, it's like industrial hygiene, right? We taught the mold world how to sample. We taught the mold world how to do the assessment, but I know because I was there, the white paper doesn't mention industrial hygiene, right? Yeah, they yeah. deleted my recommendation to, to, to allow industrial hygienists to be on a list of one of the qualifications, right? People who are qualified by American Industrial Hygiene Association, those people who were in charge of writing that white paper deleted my edits. They did not want that. So unless that's changed in the last 18 months, that's a real huge loss because you lost sure. the people who designed the science. Well, I mean, so so herein lies herein lies our challenge, right? Um, I think is that, and Lauren, you, you pointed this out. There needs to be open dialogue, right? Because that's the only way we're going to get to uh, uh, more, you know, more of a consensus with this stuff is to be able to, um, you know, both sides have to talk, right? Yeah. Because because I, I think traditionally we really don't have we on the pract you know practitioner environmental side don't really know a lot about the medical side so, right. some some start making medical claims which drives me totally insane you know when somebody is an you know i acute consultant telling people that this this is making them sick it's like wow okay you're definitely going out of your realm but i, I also i get nervous when i've heard physicians and i won't say which type you know but some you know like oh okay allergists but i mean I, i've seen you know making claims <laughs> making claims environmental claims never having seen the environment that their patient that they see for 15 minutes lives in 24 hours a day mm -hmm. and it starts saying you have this problem it's like how do you know that you haven't seen it 
Right. And so <laughs> when I, I started with my clients, um, we would dialogue about things and I would say, well, you know, you might want to defer to your IEP and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation about, you know, cleaning your personal items and all these things. But as um, the years have moved on, I have become far more aggressive with being clear to people that I am not an attorney, I am not an IEP. The best I can do is tell you instances where I have seen remediation failures. That does not mean that it applies to you. It does not mean that it is your situation, but you know, it's uh, physicians need to, um, for their own liability, need to be very careful. And similarly, the, the online, online social media groups not necessarily yours um but you know facebook groups that right, facebook groups where there's a lot of like, facebook burn, groups that's scary burn down your house and you're like uh, no yeah, yeah. Like, the only solution I, is to destroy you know start rebuild your no, house it's like no that's no. not sometimes and, maybe that is but that's in the most extreme of extreme cases right and i've seen remediations household remediations surpass the value of the house i've seen that um i have yeah. seen some recent remediations going up to three to $500,000. Um, it's, it's, everyone needs to stay in your lane, but we also need to reach outside our lane and dialogue with the people who are experts in what they do. Um, in particular, I love my local IEP. I love my local IEP. I know that I can send him into a space and he's going to use his construction background, his, um, and I mean, he's been doing this for, for years and years and years. I'm, I'm so sorry that I don't have his, his list of qualifications, but um, they're, they're most definitely there. And I, I, he's willing to take in-wall samples after using logic to see if we need to do it. There are, I've seen horror stories, I've personally experienced horror stories where I have said, there's an issue behind here. I've had it tested with another IEP, it's verified can you please do an in-wall sample? And I can't even go on to tell you what I saw them do. Um, they didn't realize that I knew a tiny little bit of things. Um, and it just, it, it's upsetting. It's upsetting and we just need to do best by our clients. But what typically I can say in my experience is a big limiter um, when you're working with uh, IEPs is when you're working with someone who's still answering to homeowners insurance. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's, and there, there's a, a percentage of people in the industry that are on the consulting side that do answer that. Yeah. And, but there are physicians who have insurance, you know, and it's that same thing. My hands are tied when I work with insurance and I, it's, it's, it's so hard. It's hard to navigate, but again, IEPs, if you're someone who is passionate about what you're doing, um, you are very thorough, you're, you're, you're hitting all the bells and whistles and you're being responsible with how your patient, uh, your paint, you're being responsible with how you're, you're um, spending client money on samples and these things reach out to a local physician. An allergist, if I reached out to an allergist, I'd be laughed out of the room. I'll be the first to tell you that. So IEPs out there who are looking to connect with doctors, you are not going to allergists. You're not going to allergists. 
you are going to functional medicine practitioners. Google functional medicine practitioners. Those are the people you want to interact with because those are the people who are seeing your mold clients that no one else is helping. And that's, I think that's an important point to make is that, you know, the, traditionally, right, that's really where people go. It's like, well, I think we have a mold problem. So, they, you know, they go to an allergist, not to be an allergist, but they're looking at it from a certain perspective. Yeah. Like a carpenter, you know, to everything, to a carpenter, everything is a nail, you know, it's yeah. like, you're, you're, that's your perspective. And, but, but that's true with something, you know, that's also true with the IEP side. There's IEP people who really look at things very linearly and, mm -hmm. and you know, are not, and, and don't understand maybe building science principles and a lot of other stuff. And their first course of actions take a bunch of samples you know and, and they're they're going to make their determinations based off some spore traps or something and, and that's to me that's equally as disheartening you know because because while they might be successful some of the time with that you know very limited blinder approach most of the time they're going to they're going to be off the mark and i think that's true on the medical side too where they just there isn't an understanding so so we, we have a long ways to go with this there there's another question we have here um this one is interesting do you envision a time where there are any federal mold standards that will reassure consumers that they are able to get well through the healthcare system and that their house is able to be remediated with a clear and consistent standards by trained professionals Ooh. that's a tough one I know where that question is coming from, and that question has a lot of pain behind it and a lot of sadness behind it. Um, know that in my time as president of ICI, there are certain key things that we're going to be working towards. Um, there are vested interests in the mold realm. There are. and. I don't know if the change will be five years from now, 10 years from now, um, but change really starts with acknowledgement. And from acknowledgement comes interest and from interest comes research and from research comes money. And so there's going to be a sea change. The hardest part about the process is you're going to have to financially incentivize systems that are in place in order to change this. You are going to have to financially incentivize homeowner's insurance to change this, healthcare insurance to change this. I mean, right now, OSHA, EPA standards, throw bleach on it if it's under 10 square feet. Like we have a, a huge uphill battle in front of us. Um, and so again, it just really goes back to the idea of we need to respect one another's lanes, but we need to reach across the aisles and dialogue with one another and create this concentrated effort moving forward because we, something needs to change about this. Lyme disease was first like paid attention to in like 1985 or so. Mm -hmm. And only a couple of years ago, did the CDC go, yep, yeah, that's, that's a thing we should be looking into. To the fact that um, I, I wanna just kind of put this cool little tidbit out there. There is a woman who brought um, additional ICD-10 codes, diagnosis codes for certain subsets of Lyme disease to um, the uh, World Health Organization. It may have been the World Health Organization or the UN. I'm so sorry that I don't know off the top of my head too many letters at this moment. Um, <laughs> but she essentially said by not having these diagnosis codes, this is um, a human rights violation because without these diagnosis codes, people cannot get medical representation. Um, these things can't be researched, funding can't be pumped into it. And she actually 
was able through that particular tactic to get diagnosis codes for additional types of Lyme disease to be included in the next round of diagnosis codes. And so 1985 to, she did that in 2017. Like, so this is what I'm saying. I that's hear a long, the That's question. a long uphill battle. It's a long uphill battle, but yeah. like we're, we're doing it. We're, we're moving in that direction. Um, and I think it's podcasts like yours and, you know, people like Scott who are speaking up and reaching out to their local folks. Like so long as we keep this dialogue going, their power in numbers. And mm -hmm. we just need to take something that's a very difficult topic and incentivize it to people who might not want it. Um, so I think as more and more people kind of hop on that bandwagon, I think, um, or I have hope in my heart of hearts that something will start to shift and change. I mean, but what's the next, what is the next actionable step for us to do, I mean, collectively and maybe individually as different sides of the equation and there's more than two sides obviously this is not this is not a real simple thing because you do have insurance you have people that you know create legislation you have you know there's there's a lot of different factors here to to, to change the way things are done i mean a lot of things are going to have to shift and change we still have the belief that like hepa is going to be like the one thing that saves us all you know and um there are a lot of things that need to change. Um, I have some hopes and ideas and thoughts in um, my heart, in my brain. Um, I, I really don't feel comfortable at this moment going too much into them. Um, but I think that this conversation is on everyone's mind who's a part of ICI. Everyone's mind is a part of ICI. And it's something that we are really going to be um, hopefully moving forward with, with a concentrated effort. So um, I don't mean to say like stay tuned um, because it might be a long tune in, but yeah, I think so long as we're showing up, that's the foundation. That's what talk to your neighbor, talk to your friend, reach out to that insurance, private insurance adjuster and ask them to get involved in your mode remediation claim. If you're sick, like, mm -hmm get the word out, you know? Um, and I, I do think things will shift and change. We just all need to make sure that we're moving in unison and we're protective of one another. We just need to keep our ears to the ground. So when things do start to shift and change, we are on board to support one another moving forward. I mean, clearly mold has, I, I mean, well, it has, this has been for a while, has been become a lot of the poster child traditionally of the indoor air quality, indoor environmental right. industry. Now, again, that's been superseded by, you know, uh, SARS-CoV-2 and the pandemic, of course. Now, I mean, to, to some extent, well, not to some extent, I think it's taken, you know, the headlines and everything. But, you know, the fallback still, I think, with most practitioners in the IAQ realm is still mold seems to be the question. I mean, I, I have this from, you know, clients call us, commercial clients, and uh, they, they believe they might have an indoor environmental issue. And the first thing is, can you test for mold? It's like, okay, well, you know, that's not necessary. You know, if it's a general IAQ question, that's you know that that's a potential parameter, of course, right? But right. you know, that's their first thing is they want mold tests. It's like, well, okay, why don't we take a look at what what's going on here? Why don't we Why don't we find out what's happening? You know, what are your occupants experiencing? What do they think? Right. You know? Right. So it, this is this is stuff. It's hard. That though. gentle education is what's needed. That gen and I think people know mold because they go mold. <laughs> Because they know that it's well, it's not at the surface. They know it's a thing, and it's mm -hmm. kind of back there, and they know it's a problem. But they—that's why I think that people kind of jump to the worst case scenario in those situations. But you and I both know, like, uh, 
uh, horrible VOCs, like things that stay kicking around the area. Like there was a high school that was shut down in Vermont because of PPCs um, that stayed persistent, obviously, um, from caulking that was used in its original construction. So I think one of the things that I like honing in on, or I at least like expressing, is that there are there's more than to just mold in the indoor built environment. But when you start to improve in air quality in a building, sometimes you're kind of um, addressing more than one thing in that space. Um, and it, it, it rather unintentionally. So if I go in and I have someone kind of addressing mold in a water damaged building, we're probably going to be addressing the the bacteria that's associated with the water mm-hmm. damage building and all sure. these things and um, you know all the uh, different chunky fragments and you know you go on mm-hmm. and you name it. So I think the motion and the movement towards is improved indoor air quality and I think that is and I really don't say this lightly. I think that is one of the darker blessings in disguise of what we're all going through right now is people are saying oh indoor air quality matters like the CARES Act provided huge allotments of money for schools to improve their air handling system. Mm -hmm. And there were definitely times that I dialogued with clients to dialogue with their employers to let them know that there was money allotted to improve air qualities in commercial Mm -hmm. buildings or school buildings. um, And you could feed two birds from one hand with that. So I think people are starting to wake up to it more and more. And then you're starting to see these kind of, um, third party private groups popping up that are ensuring safe air quality building spaces. Um, and I, I thought that was interesting. I saw something like that launched uh, last this past year in the spring. Um, and so I think there's an awareness that we're all moving towards. I just hope it comes sooner. Right yeah, so it, it seems it's, it's too slow moving for me. Uh, but to that end of the comment you just made about schools. So at three o'clock today, um, the Healthy Schools Network actually is is uh, hosting a webinar uh, specifically on that topic on energy uh, and uh, indoor air quality in schools based on what's happening with, you know, with the American Rescue Plan. And uh, that's we're going to be live streaming that on uh, in the community as well. Um, that's streaming over on School IAQ. That's under the discussions platform. And again, that's open to the general public, so you don't even need to be a community member to watch it. Uh, we'll, we'll be simulcasting their Zoom uh, webinar that they're running from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern time today, so an hour from the conclusion of this broadcast. So definitely take a look at that, because that should, that should be interesting. Uh, it's, it's, again, being hosted by Healthy Schools Network, which is a not-for-profit that uh, has been working tirelessly. Tire, no, I can't. Why am I dying on that word? Um for many years, for decades, yeah. you know, I, I know their executive director, Claire Barnett, and she's, you know, this has been a passion of hers for many decades. And uh, so that this will be a good thing to tune into. Would you put Claire in contact with us over at ICI? Because I would be happy a... to make that connect. This is what we're all Beautiful. about with the community, by the way. Dude, do you know that 5% of my clients are teachers? Really? 5% of my clients that are teachers. That doesn't surprise me, though. I, no, it doesn't. But it really does. It. It, it doesn't. Schools have some of the worst indoor environments in in the country, public schools, certainly. And for each one teacher, you are having them in front of 30 to 40 kids. Mm -hmm. And so the Pandora's box of schools, I've done a whole entire lecture about mold exposure with pediatrics. And you better believe that that is part of the dialogue teachers 
are part of the pediatric dialogue. So um, I would love to get hooked up with uh, the Healthy Schools Network just to see if we can dialogue with ICF because mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's so important. Uh, clearly. And, and the thing is, you know, to, to your point earlier that there's funding now, yes, there is funding, but there's not really good direction. You know, there's not there's not good guidance. Schools, schools are potentially going to get a windfall of financial aid to do things, but they're not really sure what to do. Right. You know, and it's mm -hmm. like the, that's you don't fix a problem by just throwing money at a problem, throwing, you know, half a trillion dollars at something doesn't necessarily fix the problem if people don't utilize that money in a sensible and wise way. So. Right. This is this is and this is an immediate uh, situation, right? We're we're opening schools in a few weeks. It's already in the south, they've already started opening public schools right. for the next semester. So, yeah, challenging. Well, you know what? We're we're run out of time again. Again. Like, no, but this is so 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 to to my to that point, we do need to continue our discussions and dialogues. I you know you, yeah. I, I envision you being a a regular on the show. Um, and I hope you. I hope you're willing to. Do I, that. I have a great time every time I'm on. It's it's absolutely wonderful. And this is it's work that needs to be done. Not only is this absolutely. fun, but this is work that needs to be done. I'm more than happy to do that. So no no question about it. Um, so uh, you know, one again, another quick plug for the Healthy Buildings uh, event uh, that's coming up this November 9th through 11th in Honolulu, Hawaii. And you might say, "Oh, it's in Hawaii," but you should also say, "Oh, it's in Hawaii." <laughs> you know, it's a it's a great opportunity to uh, actually have a business trip to Hawaii and uh, maybe extend it for more than just three days. I mean, that's that's what I would recommend. Um, it's going to be a really interesting event because it it is Isiac's first move to tie their typical academic programs to actual field practice. And it's a great opportunity to be there and network both directions because this information needs to be bi-directional. Just like, just like we were speaking about in our show today, um, it's critically important, I believe, that we, you know, that they, at research and academia needs to understand what to research next, right, based on practice. And practice needs to understand what's coming down the pipe because they don't really share information real well. Not mm -hmm. unlike the IEPs and the medical community. We, you know, we, we kind of have a, there's like a little bit of a barrier between all of us here. Well, don't forget, there's also a barrier between people at the research bench in medical and people on the clinician forefront. Your, it's on the, the practice side, the same thing, right? It's, it's still yeah. a practice versus research. And um, I'm working on connecting that too. <laughs> I'm actively yeah. working right now on connecting that. So I, I could see where, the, you know, that, that that's another, uh, another very important uh, thing for you to be doing. So um, yeah, I, I, Lauren, it's always a pleasure to have you here. I really, I really appreciate uh, your efforts, your organization's efforts. And uh, yeah, you're actually a fun uh, guest to have on the show. So that's pretty cool too. <laughs> that's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not to say that all our guests aren't great because they are. You know, I, I was about to go down a rabbit hole that I didn't want to enter. Uh, <laughs> but you, you stand out among them. How's that? Well, I Everybody's. It. All of our children are great, but some we like more than others. Uh, no, you can't say that. But we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, if you, you know, again, I, I would comment that you you may have been watching the show on Healthy Indoors online global community, but you know, as we went live today, we found a stream glitch with our Vimeo link up, so it didn't stream live there. It streamed live in about four other places. Um, the recording will be available later this afternoon from this show, so it will be available on the community as well as the audio podcast. Um, we'll push those links out all over. But um, here's a little, just uh, if you're not part of the Healthy Indoors community, you should be.
was an abrupt ending, but and we'll go with that. So, Dr. Lauren Tessier, uh, coming from Vermont, thank you so very much for joining us today. Um, that's all we have. That's all the time we have today. It's sad. It's always. I always hate when we end the show. I'm like it's like ah. <laughs> so um, you're welcome here anytime. Uh, we really appreciate your participation, and uh, we'll be talking soon. Uh, we'll be here again next week, next Thursday, and we will be streaming on the Health Indoors Online Global Community. I assure you that that glitch will be resolved uh, for the live stream. Um, we uh, welcome you to join us next week. We have uh, and actually a, a really good show coming up. Uh, uh, the uh, Executive Director of AFA um, will be on Kenny uh, Kenny Mendez, um, and, and uh, it, really good program on allergy and uh, and asthma next week. So uh, that'll be uh, again from one to two p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on the Healthy Indoors Show. Until next time, um, we'll see you uh, on the show, and uh, we'll hopefully engage with you throughout the week on the Healthy Indoors community. I'm Bob Krell. Take care.